Hello. Good morning. Good early morning to you. Oh, it's so early today. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's early. I tried to figure out what a participle was this morning. I used to know all that stuff, like backwards and forwards. Okay. And uh, Present participle, past. That's right, past participle. And yeah. so I was doing a little bit of studying, and then I was like, what are you doing? It's freaking eight in the morning, and you're just stop it. What made you think about that? I don't know. I was just trying Ger- to think. Like a gerund, a gerund phrase. Yeah, I was trying to remember. You know, I loved grammar. I loved grammar in school and and uh like I would just diagram sentences just full of joy. <laughs> but so, it's been so long since I practiced it. Yeah. You're getting you rusty. Know, rusty. I can't, you know, and there are people that I admire who can I mean, nobody I know closely, but I know there are people because they contact me on the internet who have, who have their, you know, their grammar rules. They are, they are practicing grammarians, but I'm just really out of shape. The, there's a few yeah, things. I know that, what a, I know what a participle is, but I was just sure. like, what, what, is, what is it really? Ugh. Go ahead. You were about to say. Well, I was going to say, like, I have an English degree, and of all people, I should remember all of that, but I don't. And my mom is retired now, but college English professor, so I should should really know what all that is. And still, like, I'll I'll forget, and I'll – sometimes I'll be writing something, and I'll have to text my mom, and I'll text her, and I'll I'll say, like, what – is it John Roderick and me, or John Roderick and I – or is it me and John or John and, you know, like things like that, or who's with the apostrophe or who's W-H-O-S-E and little things like that. And she never makes me feel bad about it. She always just, she'll explain the answer. So it's, you know, I've got that. Yeah. I, I see a lot of, you wouldn't think, right. You wouldn't think that you would see grammatical errors coming from adults, but I see a lot of the incorrect Dan Benjamin and I yeah. formulations out there because it sounds people got got that beaten into them. And then they don't then they then they don't know the don't know the rule for it, don't know the simple sort of way to untangle it. And they're just throwing that stuff out there where you're like, Ugh, I is wrong there. Should be me. But in any case, that's just grammar. That's just morning grammar. <laughs> that's not. That's not where we're at right now. Yeah. No, we're, we should be arguing about Benghazi like everybody else in the world. Okay, so tell me, tell me about the Benghazi because I saw you tweeting about that mm. a lot last night, and it's, I want you to frame it so that the future generations mm. are will understand it and in the right context. Uh so I mean, I am no Benghazi expert. No. Let's just put it right there yeah put it right out there but it seems to me that what happened in benghazi was fairly self-explanatory um there was an american mission there and it was guarded as uh, in the style that in the style where we weren't expecting a enormous spontaneous mob to form mm-hmm and um, and when an enormous spontaneous or, or or like riled up mob of people did form, we were underprepared, and it was a far away mission, and not we weren't able to get support like 
to that location mm-hmm. in time to prevent this mob from overrunning our mission and killing the Americans there. And that happens in the world that, you know, the, the, um, you know, people, a, a truck bomb blew up the Marine barracks in Beirut when we were kids. And, you know, it's the danger of foreign service in a war torn country. Uh, but it was immediately turned into a partisan issue by the, by the crazy Congress that we have because it was suggested somehow that the State Department, um, the State Department made these intentionally terrible decisions to strand right to not provide support that to when when they were asked to provide support i guess yeah right although you know it's um i can only imagine the the many 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 uh requests for support sent by american missions globally that arrive on the desk of whatever poor State Department employee is responsible for that stuff. And, and I think that all, all of that evidence and all of that supposed evidence is very unclear and all is retroactively trying to capitalize on just a tragedy but an unfortunate reality, which is that that mission was out in the boonies and for the longest time our, dipl- our head diplomat there sort of walked those streets brazenly and bravely and openly without fear and then the situation on the ground changed and changed very rapidly and not in a way that anybody could have anticipated and so retroactively looking at that and saying oh well we should have had 45 marines there or, oh we should have had a fortified i mean it's a it's a country that we a, a country with a recently toppled leader where there's no law on the ground and we yeah well, i mean we had a underprotected base there, especially considering that the U.S. Embassy in Berlin is, is like, and Berlin not really uh, not really a very dangerous place right now, let's say, but the U.S. Embassy there has been constructed in uh, to withstand a tactical nuclear weapon. Mm. You know, like the street, right. street there is closed off with these retractable pneumatic anti-truck barriers and it's uh, it's very impressive frankly but in in uh in libya at that point i think that we were just using a house that was available i mean and it had been secured it was a secured facility but i mean this is the thing what can you do when 600 people decide they're going to overrun a place you you keep keep 200 marines every everywhere there's a there's a us office you can't So anyway, total tragedy, lives were lost, but then it became an issue that the Congress was going to use to try to destroy the party in power, specifically Hillary Clinton. Yeah. As they have used every single issue that, uh, that they can and a thousand issues that you would think it was impossible for them to use to try to leverage uh, to try to leverage the news in a way that achieves their ultimate goal, which is, frankly, to shut down the government. 
and create some strange libertarian utopia where no one has to, where everybody just obeys their own inner God-given law and the police become helpmeets. Or I have no idea what their vision of the country is, what they would like to see. The federal government goes away or becomes simply an administration of the army. You mean libertarian philosophy in general? Yeah, I mean, or just, but not not libertarian philosophy, but the perverted version of it that's oh, being right. practiced now, right? I mean, like I understand, I understand. Libertarian philosophy, like I understand sort of Marxist philosophy, which is if all the conditions are perfect and everyone in the world agrees. Yeah, then it works great. And shares our fundamental <laughs> premise and behaves accordingly, then yes, we could create a utopia tomorrow. I mean, I think fundamentally, m- most people who are educated in this kind of dialogue would agree that the at its fundamental core the libertarian philosophy is a great one it's all about personal responsibility it's all about people understanding their own rights and other people's rights but like you're saying like in practice well i've never seen it in practice well sure we've never seen marxism perfectly practiced socialism or even democracy perfectly practiced all of those things come up against the you know, the first problem is just when the fifth person in line says, um, I, I object, mm-hmm. I, I object to some aspect of this and, uh, and I'm going to sit here and protest. And it's just like, well, there goes your utopia. Now, what are you going to do about this guy? And that's just, that's just human beings. And every, every, every style of government we try is imperfect. And you find the imperfect, you find the, Three-legged dog that works best, I guess. And so, you know, for, for, for centuries, people have been saying, you know, this much government is too much, slightly less government, please. And then other people say, this amount of government isn't quite enough, slightly more government, please. And that was our traditional, I, I hesitate to say that, because America hasn't been around that long. Right. But at least that was the that was the version of a, the two party system that I was raised in. Right. That that the that the Republicans said we would like slightly less government in the following categories, and the Democrats said we would like slightly or in some cases significantly more government in the following categories. But now we're in this crazy world where where half of the half of the group is just like we're going to shut the government down entirely. There, it provides it, it. It serves no function. And it provides no useful service. And the, you know, I mean, I, I'm no fan of the Democrats anymore. But they sit there and sort of put their head in their hands and go, I, "What? No government? No government? No functioning government?" Seems like a weird thing for people who have run for public office yeah. to advocate, right? And so, and so, it's so it's cynical. For, it's cynical for someone to run for public office with the stated purpose of destroying that office. It's 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 gross and 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 despicable, I guess. What do you think? I mean, you've traveled all around the world, right? Like, mm. what 
do you think is the general view of the way things work here from outside the country? I you know, we, like, are we, are we as a, as Americans, are we reviled? Are we admired? Do, do people think it's crazy what goes on over here or are they, is it a model still in some ways? I think it's absolutely a model in the sense that, um, that we are, <clears throat> we are absolutely the world's premier melting pot. There's no place that has absorbed as many different people and has attempted to um, be as inclusive yeah. and structure not just a government, but a social world in which the, the ultimate goal is that all people are equally welcome and more than anywhere else in the world and more than anywhere else in history. Uh, we have achieved it. I mean, like there's an argument that Moorish Spain did a good job of of welcoming uh, like a diverse cast of people, but but no, nowhere near what America has done. And so, so a lot of the like foment here is a result of just we've absorbed a global population, and we're still trying. And and our initial idea, American democracy which was formulated in a very different time by a very different group of people with different aims has, it's an elastic enough system and, 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 and a, and a forward thinking enough system that it has continued to evolve and embrace all this diversity of thinking and still is working. Right. And that's, I, I think still exciting to everyone on earth and should be and has been and it's been a model for subsequent democracy other places and you know even people with even european countries with very different sort of parliamentary systems mm -hmm. like they're they're always reflecting on america what we're doing but we're also ridiculous we are ridiculous and partly that kind of democracy lends itself to uh, and, and, and increasingly lends itself to a kind of um, well, uh, an increasing lack of commonality. And this is, uh, I guess, the danger of, not the danger, but it's the, it's the consequence of diversity and particularly of of relativism social relativism is just that there's no common understanding of what the goal is or the or the purpose of the or or or, or even a commonly held respect for just the very basic building blocks are you talking so, about of of by the people or by the people in power or in elected well, office both. That's the the thing. We we truly do have a representative government, and yeah. and and it's imperfect, and it still it still sends a, a sort of privileged class upward. But increasingly, that class is less defined by traditional privilege and more more uh, certainly a more diverse 
set of privileges is is sending people up, but they reflect the the will of the people, and the people no longer share a common sense of themselves. and And I think when you look at other countries in the world, they have the benefit, particularly European countries, have the benefit of a kind of homogeneity mm-hmm. at their core, and they're trying to absorb immigrant populations and new ideas. And that homogeneity is under, you know, is is at risk by by their attempt to sort of welcome a more diverse population. But it's you know, but it, but they have a kind of a fundamental sense of themselves, and they can either uh, they can either absorb populations and try to try to bring them bring those new groups into their national sense of of itself or they you know or they can adopt that sense to to uh incorporate new ideas but like in germany there are a lot the, the majority of immigrants are from turkey right and in france the majority of immigrants are from algeria and morocco and in sweden the majority of immigrants are from uh, what, what would you say the majority? I mean, I think that there are a lot of African immigrants in Sweden, but you know, even the immigration, even the immigrant populations in those places are somewhat uh, homogeneous. Mm-hmm. You know, they're largely from a from another group that has a, has an identity, and like in France, I think the Muslim population there that has that was born and raised in France definitely has an identity crisis, but. It's nothing like here in the United States where it's just like at any sort of urban high school, you have people from all around the world. And in a lot of cases, they're all, their common thread is hip hop or, you know, like they're, uh, whatever our lingua franca is, Mm -hmm. it's, it has changed from being that everybody says the Pledge of Allegiance or everybody reads mark twain that's certainly a thing of the past but it's but that i don't know that unifying sense of self it's uh it's changing worldwide but but i don't think i think we're we're again in a in a middle period right now where where Everyone asserting their independent sense of self, particularly in America, that every single person is their own nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's creating a a restrained chaos that doesn't resemble the not only the America that I grew up in, but the one that I the one that I anticipated or like aspire to or dream of. It isn't an all against all situation. It's not um, the American democracy and the constitution and all of our institutions aren't just some electrified fence around a teeming mass The you know, the, the aspiration is that people pull together and that we're working on a kind of global understanding of that. We are a single race and that we are, we have a common consciousness. You see, I think it's interesting that particular topic, because I remember 
when I kind of, you, you know, you mentioned that everyone sees themselves as their own tiny little nation. I think in my personal experience, it was never more true than when I lived in Florida because Florida was such a transient place. Nobody was born in Florida. Mm-hmm. Nobody stays in Florida. You know what I mean? Like everyone was always, especially central Florida, it was much more pronounced. But no one stayed anywhere for a very long period of town a uh, time. And your, your individual town wasn't like you didn't have the concept of a town or even a neighborhood really, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know? So, so you, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Uh, you know, like if they want to play their music loud, like they're going to play their music loud. That's your problem that you chose uh-huh. to live near me because I'm going to be playing my music loud. Like, that's what I do. That's my thing. <laughs> that's my thing. That's my thing. I'm a DJ and like I play my music loud. Sucks to be you next door neighbor. And what also sucks is it's going to suck for my next place because I'm only in this place for six months and I'm moving in the next place I move. I'm going to do the same thing. And sucks to be you if you live near me there, because that's my thing. And that was very much the attitude, whatever my thing happened to be. Maybe it's, I like to work on, you know, the two cars that I have up on on blocks in front of my house. Like that's, I just like to do that. And I don't care that I'm renting this place and Mm -hmm. I haven't mowed the lawn yet this year. And you know, my rent is 900 bucks a month because this place is just falling apart. I don't care that like the people next door to me and across the street from me are all like fixing up their homes and bought them and trying to make this a great neighborhood because like when my buddies come to pick me up at six in the morning, they're going to lay on that horn to wake me up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, and that's my thing. Cause I don't really like work in construction. And by the way, I'm describing real life scenarios. I could do that for the next hour of just what it was like to live in Florida. People who think burning their trash is their right <laughs> to burn their trash on their front yard then and in their underwear, you know, like, okay. yeah, that, that, that sounds it's pretty good my, to me right now. it's my, land yeah it's my land here and the funny thing is like i growing up you know in part of in south florida it was not like that in central florida was much much more like that and we would have in central florida we had very much had hill what we would call hillbillies or the the term redneck was very applicable to a lot of that but even in the places that weren't kind of on the outskirts, even in the main, uh, the more air quotes, like metropolitan kind of areas, the general attitude was like, I'm only here for a little while. So it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter what I do. And this was a shock for me coming from Philadelphia where people are born and raised and live and die without leaving the neighborhood that they, you know what I mean? Like the, they're in one neighborhood and like the idea of like moving to a different neighborhood or even going to a different neighborhood to get like a competing cheesesteak, like that's a big deal. <laughs> you know, there are people who just, I live here, I work here, this is what I do. And, you know, I'm not saying that like they're polite to one another, but they very much, there was always this understood thinking of like, Well, if I play, and I'll go back to the music as an example, if I play my music in my apartment loud, my neighbors will hear that. They'll know it's me and they'll hate me and maybe bad things will happen in my apartment because of that, because they know about it. And also me doing that 
is going to make it okay for everyone else to do that. And like there was just this conscientiousness in a way, even though they might not have been thrilled about it, there was this awareness that the things that I do will affect other human beings and they will do things that will affect me. And so this has always been this fundamental philosophy that I've always had, maybe because I grew up there, maybe just because, but like, I'm aware that other people are around me and I don't want to do something that might inconvenience them because I don't want them to inconvenience me. And if I play my music loud and then they do it or they let their dog bark out in front of their yard all day or in the back, it's hypocritical of me to say, you need to shut your dog up. Why? You play music that time? Okay, well, I don't ever want to have that, you know? But in Florida, I notice it's very different from here in Texas, very different from certainly in Northeast. But that whole concept of like, I am my own nation unto myself because I own this land or because I rent it and I live here. That whole philosophy of putting yourself first, I think is fundamentally different than what I saw like in South Korea, for example, when I visited there for a few weeks, where it's very much a part of of their culture. And I think Asian cultures in general are always thinking and talking about the interconnectedness of things. And I think it's so easy to lose track of that when you're in your car, you know, and it's just you in your SUV, you know, in this bubble. And then you're in your office or cube at work and you're in the bubble and you're in your apartment or your home and it's, it's yours. Our whole culture is conducive to that kind of thinking. Do you agree? Uh, do I agree? Yeah. Well, I mean, you said a lot of things. Uh, do you agree universally with all of them across the board? <laughs> I was at a I was at a uh, a restaurant yesterday that was mostly empty. It was me and my family, another girl eating alone, and then a guy eating alone. And he was what thirty year olds clean-cut white guy and his phone rang and he took the call mm-hmm. and then did that thing that you, I think you see periodically now, although it still surprises me, where he took the call in the restaurant and proceeded to speak at, you know, a, not, a, not a slightly quieter volume, but a slightly elevated volume because he, I, I guess, feels like you have to shout into the phone. Not <laughs> shout, but you know, like, hi, oh, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm at a restaurant. Yeah. Oh. Uh. What? Oh. Okay. Well. What? So. What do you? So. What's the plan then? You know. Just like he. I mean. I don't think he would talk to somebody sitting across the table from him at that volume. But he's kind of shouting into the phone because I don't know what he. Maybe he thinks it's a walkie-talkie. Yeah. But rather than say, "Hey, I'm in. I'm in a restaurant right now. Can I give you a call back?" Or say, "Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I'm in a restaurant, but yeah, I can talk for a second. What do you got?" You know, he's just like, la da 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 And, you know, when you, there, I, I've been in situations like that before where I walked over to the person and said, can you take your call outside? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but everyone else in this cafe is working quietly. And I've had incredibly hostile responses to that. Oh, yeah. You know, just people like so incredibly offended and like, like, uh, 
like I came up and slapped them in the mm. face with my dick. You know, like <laughs> that that degree of shocked and horrified. Wow. That 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 someone would intrude on their space that much and come over and acknowledge that they were that they were at in this instance and it happened in uh, I think the 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 most egregious example happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where it was a cafe, in this case, full of people, everyone working quietly at some kind of book or computer or, you know, it was like you could hear a pin drop in this place. And this guy takes a phone call right in the middle of the cafe and proceeds to just chatter on with this inane gossip at the top of his lungs. And you, know, you could look around the room and every single person in there had their hackles up and was just like, oh my fucking mm. God, can you believe this guy? And so I walked over and just said exactly what I just said. Mm-hmm. And he like said to the person on the phone, I can't believe what, you know, <laughs> excuse me. And <laughs> But I was standing over him in a, in, I think what you would describe as a somewhat dominant sure. posture. Like arms and at your sides. I was, you know, I may have. I may have even had my arms crossed or maybe, maybe a Kimbo, mm-hmm. whatever it was, I was fully prepared to <laughs> slap him in the face with my dick next. <laughs> and so he slammed his book closed, put it in his, slammed it in his bag, went through this whole dramatic five-year-old temper tantrum of packing his stuff up uh, in order to take his phone call out to the sidewalk and what I wasn't saying like leave the cafe and never come back you know I was just Mm -hmm. saying hey (laughs) and I was very polite I was not at all like aggressive in in any way other than like what isn't going to happen is that I'm going to go sit down and you're going to keep talking right 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 you know that's that isn't one of the options (laughs) and uh you know and he was 24 year old white kid in a you know in a preppy shirt and and just like just didn't learn somewhere along the line that sense of that sense of community that sense of shared space that sense of intrusive yeah it's a, it, it's almost comes across as an in, self-entitled kind of a way what do you mean, to a, what do you mean almost yeah i can't the thing is i i can't perceive it any other way than just then then ultimately like a dominance move you know, that it, it is a version of lifting your leg and peeing on the entire room. <laughs> like, I am not in the habit of walking up to people and correcting their public behavior. And the, for the most part, unless someone's being aggressive to someone else, mm-hmm. and I feel like I need to intervene in a, in a, in a situation where someone, you know, someone is like... Like on their on, behalf to help them. Yeah, if yeah. someone's on a bus... And having an episode, and they are, uh, they're making it scary for other people. Or if you know, if some, if there's like a domestic abuse situation that's happening in public, I have no compunction about being the person that puts himself in in between it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not normally going to say, "Hey, you're being rude," or "Hey, that's you know, like, sir, uh, do you mind?" Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even if somebody is like being profane. I'm not, I'm not someone who would say there are children here, sir. You know, I'm like, I'm not like a public moralist, <laughs> but my God, like that, that 
that particular example in Chattanooga was a was a moment that I just oh. couldn't fathom. But yesterday in this restaurant, this guy's just chatting away, and and I'm looking at my family who were having a conversation, and it did not. It didn't go past the threshold where it was like, this guy is a public nuisance. It was just another example of like, this guy's an, an asshole. And, and in a way it's good for my daughter to learn that there are just assholes in the world who take their phone calls in restaurants. But, but she will certainly grow up in a world where, and she already lives in a world yeah. where you don't have a tantrum in a restaurant. You don't talk about, poo or pee in a restaurant you don't there are so many things you don't do in a restaurant the list of things you don't do in a restaurant is almost the longest of all lists <laughs> right because there are lists of things that you can do and can't do different places but in a restaurant my god there it's a very short list of things you can do you can talk at a at a reasonable volume you can eat your food in a polite manner you do not have a fight in a restaurant. You do not fart in a restaurant. You do not scoot your chair in a loud way. You, oh, my God. I could go on for an hour. And, and yet, this sense that, that uh, this sense of, like, what are you going to do to stop me? Or, conversely, I am an autonomous island. Mm -hmm. Other people are just pylons. And when I woke up today and ate, you know, ate a handful of Cheetos and went to class and, you know, it's all me, 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 me. Right. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think something has changed. And of course, this is like the get off my lawn thing. But it's even the little things like I was at a, a restaurant with a couple of friends last week and they have. Uh, sort of a cafe setup, so there's lots of different tables around. And the, at lunchtime, it gets busy, and the tables uh, fill up. I thought you were going to say the tables are turned. The tables, no. Uh, they don't turn fast enough. Not fast enough. And there are plenty of what I would call the two, two tops, right? It's two-seater tables. And then there's fewer of the kind that seat three, four, five people. What we call a three-top or a four-top. Sure. Or a five-top. And these four-top tables or five-top tables, I saw several people at them who were clearly, they were clearly by themselves. They would be sitting there. They might have headphones in. They have their laptop or iPad out and they're eating their sandwich and they're taking, they've taken over the four-top table. But it's clear they're not, they're not expecting someone, they're not being joined by a small group from work there alone Oh, and in a lot of cases, they aren't even eating their sandwich. They ordered one cup of coffee four hours ago right? and are nursing it. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, there's a line of people waiting to have lunch. Right. I, I always, if, if I am in a place where there's like a booth or a table designed for more than one, maybe two people, I am way too concerned to, unless the place is deserted, I will just, I can't, I can't sit in a in a booth or a table built for four people. If I know, maybe it's because I worked in restaurants. I don't know, but I just like, I won't do it. I'll, you know what? I'll make, get it to go and I'll eat in my car. Like, I'm serious. I won't, I can't do that. I feel too guilty you, about you it. And these people, these people, you can, we can walk up three of us 
standing around obviously can't fit at the two-person table. And this person, it never even occurs to them. It would never occur to them that they're doing something that that maybe they're putting themselves and their individual needs before the needs of the three or four people who now cannot eat. You know what I mean? Like that's the whole thing is like people are not aware of what they're doing in any way or how it affects other people. And when I'm in public, one of my primary goals is how is what I'm doing interfering with what other people might be doing and how can I curtail that quickly? Like I think about it as consciously as I possibly can. People will walk out of uh, the walk through the threshold of a store into the main thoroughfare and stop to talk about what they're going to do next or where they should go next or unaware that they've stepped out in front of a group of moving people who now have to also stop. And that pushes the people behind them back. Like I'm sure I'm being nitpicky about it, but it happens all the time. And I don't understand what is it that they, people don't care. Did they not, do they just not care? Are they putting, do they, do they know that they're inconveniencing other people and sort of snicker about it? I don't know. You've had a lot of coffee this morning, Dan. Yeah. This earlier in the day for me. Yeah. Merlin and I have a phrase about, uh, about that, that you're describing. Um, that's fairly well understood to be one of the themes of the current world. Mm-hmm. You need to keep moving and get out of the way. But I, for me, the hardest thing in in situations like that is when you're in a restaurant, when you sit down at a at a table when the restaurant is empty, and you get into a lively conversation, and you have your lunch, and you're having a good time, and then the restaurant fills up, and you're still eating your lunch, you're still enjoying your conversation, but then you are done. At a certain point, you are done with your lunch. And you're still enjoying your company and yeah. you're still carrying on your conversation. And there comes a moment when you are being inconsiderate. But it but it isn't it isn't one of these like egregious situations. You weren't being inconsiderate a moment ago, but all of a sudden you've been there past your allotted time, right? You you came, you used the table, you ate your food, and you've and the check has been dropped, and the restaurant has filled up. You are no longer just alone there, and there are people waiting. And you look up and there are people waiting. And that is the that's the trickiest thing, the trickiest sort of to have in your mind some consideration switch. Because I have a switch like that and mm-hmm. and it isn't I think that I think you can overdo it you can be a person who is so worried about other people that you know that you take your lunch and go eat in the alley right next to a trash fire <laughs> because you never ever ever want to be seen as inconveniencing another person and then and and that seems like you know that is uh, threaded through with martyrdom and relationships to other people that are unhealthy in the other direction. You are entitled as a, as a patron to come in and, and rent the table and use it, you know, and, 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 and along with renting that table, it's included that you can expect the uh, fairly good service, even, you know, like you're renting the table, you're buying the food and you're entitled to not have, 
to not be treated rudely by the staff. You're, you know, there are certain entitlements that you, you can expect, but that switch in your brain where, and I, and I, I, I see it happen. I see it evidenced in people and I see it not where you're in the middle of a conversation and you look up and look around the room with your eyes kind of glazed over Mm -hmm. and then you'll see certain people, their eyes will focus. They'll see people waiting at the, at the hostess stand. Then they'll do a quick scan of the room. Oh shit. There are no open tables and there are two families waiting to sit down. Right. And then they'll lean forward and say to their table, Hey, you guys, let's get out of here. Right. And it's, I mean, it's a basic courtesy and, and it and you do have to kind of snap out of the dream of of your time there but then you see other people who look up in that dream state and either never snap out of the dream or their eyes do focus they do see the people at the front they do see that the restaurant is full but they feel no personal responsibility right and don't see themselves as like part of this system right they're not complicit in this system in any way and then they just go back to like not even listening to the conversation just sitting and fiddling with their toothpick or whatever for another 20 minutes right and that is the switch that i don't understand how it can be right so present in in some people and 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 so lacking in others and where that lack whether that comes as we traditionally think like in childhood did they were they just raised poorly or is it a is it something else is it a is it on the the sociopathy spectrum or it's like your that person's grandmother and mother and father were very courteous people but this person was born with the ceo gene and they just don't give a fuck and their friends and family think they're rude and no one can explain it, you know. And I, I, I honestly don't know which it is. I think there are way too many pe- inconsiderate people for it to be the CEO gene expressing itself every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my inclination, because because my mother has such a prejudice against hill people. Let's be honest. Let's call them by their traditional name. The Hill People. My mom is from <laughs> Western Ohio. Yeah, and there, and she is the most colorblind person. She and my father were both completely colorblind people. They were, um, and they are a type of person that just sees all people as brethren, except for people from West Virginia. <laughs> And people from, in her case, Kentucky. Right. People from West Virginia and Kentucky are in a special class that my mother, who is from Northwestern Ohio, like she will never, ever, ever be able to see them as anything other than um, like a threat to civilization. Wow. And that comes from being born in 1934 in some respects, but also between that tension, uh, the tension between the different migrations of people across the United States. And she lived in a very, very narrow band 
of Quakers and you know some some place where four miles to the north they were they were Yankee Puritans and there's this little you know fifty mile wide band of Quakers Pennsylvania Quakers mm-hmm. and then to the south of that it's all Scots Irish pouring through the Cumberland Gap with their muskets and their, you know, their uh, straw hats. And she just feel felt like that part of Northern Ohio, that strip of Northern Ohio was the, the narrowest bulwark of civilization. The play, the place in America where civilization was compressed into this tiny little, you know, like yes to, um, you know, like definitely Toledo. By the time you get to Columbus, it's pretty questionable. Mm-hmm. And when you reach Cincinnati, it all bets are off. <laughs> and so, you know, having like read a lot on the topic, in some in some ways motivated by trying to understand my mother and her prejudice, and realizing that you know the migrations across America and the different groups of people. There's a wonderful book called Albion Seed that talks about those those waves of different cultures, all mostly from England and to a lesser extent Germany and Switzerland, but like very much from different parts in the United Kingdom to different places on the eastern seaboard of the United States, there were there were displaced these very different cultures that flourished in very different ways. And, and a lot of this American sense of I am a nation unto myself and I get to do what I want and go fuck yourself Mm -hmm. is, is that Scots Irish mentality that was transplanted from the borderlands of Scotland and Ireland where those people were under constant siege for generations and were living in holes dug in the ground and developed a a mentality that they were at war with, with everyone. And it just, it's, it's, it's permeated American culture. It has, it's become, you know, one of the five dominant mentalities, but it's by far the most, uh, it's by far the the most aggressive mentality when it comes when it's confronted with other people right the the uh, a lot of the other immigrant groups to the states you know found some kind of rapprochement with their neighbors even if it was like keep your blinds drawn and mind your own business at least it was considerate or courteous in public right but you come up against what what my mom would describe as the hill people and they don't give a fuck about courtesy in public in that same way it's i mean they have obviously like very elaborate courtesies but they're not you know they're not worried about uh they don't stand on ceremony in quite the same way that your people from New Hampshire may, or even the people from Virginia may. Certainly the people from Virginia had the most 
the most elaborate sense of courtesy. But that's been, that's been, you know, co-opted in certain degree by the, by what we now identify as a Southern mentality. And, you know, there were two Souths, right? There were the, there were the Virginia South, there's the Virginia South, and then there's the, then there's the, well, the West Virginia South. I guess it's not even the South. I'm kind of, I get I get very like stormed up in in this kind of thinking because there's because it it a lot of it is 300 years old but right it really is it really is present in our contemporary culture and it's present in this constant confusion that we feel about one another that you you know that people in America who largely share a common culture, look at one another and just go, what are you talking about? Yeah. What are you even motivated by? I, I mean, that my Benghazi tweet, uh-huh. I mean, I have to assume that of my 30,000 odd followers, most of them know what I'm about and what I'm, where I'm coming from. Yeah. And I'm like, Benghazi has, you know, effectively become a word like Watergate or Vietnam where right. the initial the initial instance, the initial tragedy of the event, the tragedy has been subsumed beneath the travesty of the, of the subsequent reaction to it. And so whatever, you know, how the, the lives that were lost and the, and the, the incident that actually happened in Libya, the word Benghazi now has been transformed into meaning a congressional boondoggle and clown car uh, that wastes resources, that exhausts the public interest, and and becomes a a uh, you know a, a travesty of and a, and a, and a hilarious an unintentionally hilarious one. And I got three or four responses from people who live in Idaho that no, that are people that regularly reply to me on the internet with like, you know, Hey, I'm making a joke or, Hey, I got your joke. Here's another joke. Like right. what I, people I consider to be Twitter, uh, like vocal followers and Twitter friends, tw- Twitter allies. A couple of them were just like, Oh, Benghazi. Now, <laughs> now we're talking about something. We're talking about some sacred ground. All right. Benghazi. And I was just like, Wow. Right. We can, when we are, when we are laughing about the thing, you know, the, the nerd stuff that we, that we share, that all is well and good, but you cross into some of this other turf and you find you're in people's sacred space in a way that is where, where all of a sudden there's a, there's like a lack of intelligibility. And I and I wrote to a couple of them. I was like, "You know me. You know who I am. You tweet at me every day, right? So you know that I am not mocking our sacred dead, right? Like, what are you like? Get down off of your stepladder for a second. <laughs> I didn't just suddenly become someone who pisses on the graves of American service people." I'm making a comment that is in the same spirit of all the comments I make. And, and to, 
to these people's credit, they were like, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a trigger, trigger word for me or something. Wow. America, USA. Yeah. Our first sponsor today is foot cardigan. Foot cardigan delivers fantastically fantastic socks to your mailbox. Every month you get a random pair of amazing socks sent to you each month. These things are great. You can get a subscription for this. That's how it works. You get it for men, women, kids. These things make the best gifts and they show up every month. You can do monthly or three, six, nine, or 12 months prepaid. So you give someone, you know, six months of new socks, 12 months of new socks. It's really fun. And they've, these guys have been on uh, the Shark Tank. If you want to see the episode they were on, it was the one that came out Friday, October 9th, 2015. Uh, but they're the real deal. This is legit. And it's so much fun. Go to Foot Cardigan, footcardigan.com slash roadwork. Support the show by doing that and get 10% off all the subscriptions, whatever it is you want to do with the code roadwork10. Roadwork10, 10% off. So go check it out. Footcardigan.com slash roadwork, roadwork10 at checkout. Do you have in, in your family any kind of like familial prejudice against certain other types of Americans? Do, do, did your folks draw a line and say these these Americans are um, are the are as my mom was my mom has taken to saying to me we should have we should have let them win the Civil War wow we should have let the South secede. <laughs> It would now, uh, it would now have an economy equivalent to that of Paraguay, <laughs> and you know they would be a client state of ours. They would be a some, you know, they would be like a a um, small and weak, <laughs> festering <laughs> sore. Right. And I'm like, mom, first of all, no, and second of all. Um, the 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 last thing we would want is an angry poor south that had its own army like that's not that wouldn't produce a great 20th century <laughs> where the you know where the south was the south remained a kind of apartheid system oh, yeah and they were and but they were also like armed and had allowed their ideology to to fully flower where where would we have been in 1960 if that were the case, you know, a hundred years later, they would be, there would be border skirmishes, skirmishes constantly. We would be at war with them. We would have been at war with them the whole time, but she, she can't, she can't abide it. And it's, you know, she's a Yankee or a, a Northerner. Yeah. No, I mean, I, all of my family would fit into the category of, of Yankees, but there was not a specific area of the country that we kind of detested because you're from pennsylvania right? yeah philadelphia yeah right. and and so that's quaker home country well m maybe not philadelphia but i mean it's we were very much of the impression without it ever really being said like the way your mom said it it was just it was a given it was understood that people from the Northeast were in were, were better and in the right and more educated and and kind of at the 
at the center and birthplace of American knowledge and 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 the epicenter and homeland for because Justice most and truth. yes because most of my family was in education in one way or another like both of my parents worked at uni- old great universities you know like not just like the little community college but like Temple University and Penn State and uh, Carnegie Mellon and you know and I like this is where we go to school, mm-hmm. but not rich. Like we don't get like we were not prep school school kids or anything far from it. We were there because of the merit of how hard we worked. Right. And your intelligence. Yes. Our intelligence is what why my cousin has two master's degrees in something I don't even understand mm-hmm. and couldn't describe. But like it, it's not there was never it was never like. Oh, we're going to the good schools because, you know, we all go to the... No, it's like you will work hard and I have the least education of anyone in my whole family. Oh, wow. (laughs) I am the least educated. That's that's something to... That's a flag to plant in your family reunions. Yeah, I have to like go to family uh, reunions and be like, yeah, I'm the one without a master's degree. I get it. Poor guy. Yeah. um, But... I'm also sort of, I would say, the only entrepreneur in my family. I'm the only one who took a path of not working at someplace else for a significant part of my career or all of my career. My granddad, who worked for the, he was a metallurgist working for the government, building like armor plating, you know, designing like armor plating for tanks and other things like that. Right. And... You know, like he worked in one place his whole life, his whole career, you know. Uh, Nobody does that anymore. No way. But he would just shake his head when I'd like, up, oh, got another job. He'd be like, you just got a new one. I'm like, yeah, but I was there forever. He's like, you were there for six months. I'm like, I know. Can you believe it? Six whole months in one place. So, you know, but it was very, it was just sort of this understood thing that like, the Northeast, like people, people in or from like, and it was okay to like live in Florida because we were, first of all, it was still the East coast. So that was okay. Mm-hmm. But like, yes, the people from New York and Philadelphia can, can go, we can go from Pittsburgh down to Florida because there's enough of us there now <laughs> that it's like that. It's just better weather. And, uh-huh. and so, like that was it was kind of accepted. It was written in. And you're, ta- you're talking specifically about Jews now. Well, th- yes. I mean, I think that uh, th- that also be- was part of it. it. They never. I was never told in any in any way that it ever mattered. Uh, like, I don't think I even dated one Jewish girl uh, because I. It just wasn't. It wasn't for me, John. Oh, you're part of the problem. You're dating but, these Shiksa girls. Yes, and, yes. I'm sure you're marrying Shiksa girls. Oh, your grandmother was just turning over in her grave. Yeah. Uh, well, you should have seen when I when I bought a VW. What happened? But oh, oh, and it wasn't because of the emissions uh, thing. Oof. Oof. Uh, no, I know it wasn't because because yeah. his fucking Volks car. Yeah, but they. You know, they were modern and they adapted to that. But, you know, like my mom always used to say to me, she used to tell me, she's like, you'll probably, you know, you should probably, uh, 
appreciate, you know, being married to a Jewish girl because, you know, they understand that we have a shared history. And I'm like, my shared history isn't like that. It's not the same growing up as a 70s, 80s kid as it was growing up in like the 40s, 50s. Like that, it, it's not like that. My shared history is like I saw Breaking 2 in the movie theater. You know, like that's my shared history. Um, and you want definitely to marry a girl that understands your Breaking 2 references. Yeah, yeah. No, that was important. Uh-huh. Beat Street, the king of the beat. Yeah. <laughs> See you rocking that beat from that's across the street. Nice. What, what, <laughs> what are you going to do if, uh, if she doesn't understand that Beat Street is a lesson? Too? Yeah, yeah. Because you can't let the streets beat you. <laughs> Damn. No, I know. But for me, that was never like, but I think that's also interesting, you know, going back to, to what your mom kind of thinks or has expressed and like what my sort of background was. It's, I feel like that it, there, there is that different today. People don't have like, even in the sports world is I think is a very good example of it. Yesterday I watched a video of some poor guy. Well, I don't know the story. I shouldn't, I don't know whose fault it was, but it's after the game. I think the Monday night game between the Eagles and the giants and some guy who, I mean, it wasn't his fault. You should be able to wear whatever you want to wear. But if you're like in the Philadelphia subways, after an Eagles Giants game and you're still wearing your bright red Giants jersey. I like you should be able to do that. First of all, you should be able to wear that anywhere you want. But at the same time, you there there has to be an awareness. We're talking about spatial awareness. <laughs> You've got I mean, to know where you are, right? The thing is if you're going to wear if you're going to wear your your Giants jersey in a Philadelphia subway, you should be with a bunch of friends. Yeah, not alone. You should not go alone into the Philadelphia subway. And, and that's just, that's some tribal knowledge. That's tribal ground. It's sacred ground. Right. And, now, and, and yeah, right. I believe, I believe that he should have been able to wear the jersey and be by himself and be there at night and be unmolested and just fine. I, it's his right to do that. Okay. I, I totally believe that. And the fact that he got uh, punched in the face by uh, a guy wearing an Eagles jersey who he had been egging on very clearly in the video egging on. Oh, <laughs> he sounds like, uh, I mean, I'm not somebody that pract- that, you know, believes at all in social Darwinism, but he seems like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that he should get the Darwin award. Yeah. But that's the, there's, there's what you, what you have the right to do. And there's also common sense, but, in any case, he was not wrong to do whatever he was doing, and, and nobody deserves uh, to... Well, I don't know if he was antagonizing well, them. Sounds okay. like he was... Maybe I'm have being you, have, nice. you, have you seen the video of the guy who put on a Yankees cap and walked around South Boston? <laughs> no. There's a, there's a guy who did it as a, as a kind of like... A test? Uh, well, or one of those prank shows. Uh-huh. And all he had to do was put on a Yankees cap and walk around South Boston, and these guys were standing on the sidewalk, and they're like, hey... Hey, what, what what the fuck do you think you're doing? Brian. The guy's like, what do you mean? And they're like, you got the wrong hat on, bro. Yeah. And he's like, what do you mean I got the wrong hat? And these guys are like, st- like stepping to him and then 
seriously just throwing punches at him. Wow. And it was an, it was an astonishing he he was he's like some prankster that lets himself get hit by people. Oh, that's wow. part of part that's of his, his prank. Thing. That's his thing. That's his thing. Yeah. He's getting some <laughs> he's getting his jollies by getting punched by by strangers and and this I was watching some video where he was, you know, pretty much openly antagonizing people of all stripes. But he needed no further provocation than just to wear the wrong baseball cap in these neighborhoods. And they were just, people were just stepping out of doorways like, Hey, you don't walk down my street wearing that hat. Yeah. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. That's, that is some American tribalism. Oh yeah. In a, in, in a, that's very impressive. I mean, it's impressive to me because we think that that we, we when we we spend a lot of time at a high level, you just forget that that exists. Have you ever? Did you? Were you following that thing where the where Albania was playing Serbia in a soccer game? I think. And, I mean, I remember hearing about it, but I don't. Yeah, and some guy's not my. Some guy flew a drone over the <laughs> <Yeah>. field, <laughs> and the drone was was uh was fly you know was flying the Albanian. Mm-hmm. Sort of national, uh, uh, not the Albanian flag, but like a nationalist sort of Albanian flag, asserting Albanian rights within Kosovo is kind of what the message was. And one, and the the thing flew. He flew the the thing too low, and a Serbian player reached up and grabbed the flag, pulled it down, and it sparked a stadium wide riot that ended the game, and like threatened the peace uh, in the region yeah and made this guy both a hero and a and a villain and his visas were revoked and you know and it's just like okay the flags matter i guess and they don't to me like you could i i wasn't raised to think that to think much of many flags I mean, I put my hand over my heart and said the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. And I don't like to, just in, just as a matter of general principle, I don't like to see the U.S. flag mistreated. If somebody wants to burn the flag in a, in a public protest, I feel like that is a political gesture and it doesn't offend me, really. Like, burn the flag. That is, a, that is an accepted way of saying something that you're trying to say but to just sort of drag a flag in the dirt or you know step on it disrespect it in in like grosser ways that that aren't that don't have the dignity of a flag burning where you're like fuck right. the united states <laughs> i am burning the goddamn flag and you're like that you know that comports with my sense of propriety but to just throw a flag on the ground or to to uh, I, I it gets my hackles up, not not hackles to the point where I'm going to be some guy in a like try burning this flag T-shirt or even someone who would intervene in a public display, but I will pick up a, I will pick a flag off off the ground. Sure, but you, I mean it, that's about that's just simply about respecting respecting something and in a way respecting history, right? Yeah, and in a way. I, the, there are not very many things that are sacred to me, but I am an American democratist. Like I do believe in the American experiment and I'm proud of it. And, 
And uh, but there's no sports flag or regional flag. I mean, the Alaska flag is a fine flag, and I and I feel very uh, I feel very proud of Alaska and mm-hmm. Washington. But their flags don't. I don't. I don't get emotional when I see the Alaska flag flapping in the wind, right? Because I because I know the I know the people who went to the to the uh, the first Alaska flag congress where they picked it, right? And those people are, you know, they're just some old white dudes. There's there's nothing there's no nothing sacred. And the Washington flag is kind of almost. I mean, it's dumb. It's a dumb flag. See the tex the Texas flag. Oh, now that's got symbols. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big, that is a big deal here. And people take, there's a reverence for the flag in Texas. And I absolutely respect that. And I I enjoy that. I enjoy the reverence. I enjoy how seriously people take being, I mean, they're, I don't know if I can, I mean, Austin's a different kind of a, kind of a place because it's yeah. the third coast and it's tech and it's, you know, all this, but if you go just a little bit outside of Texas, it, you're very, very quickly find yourself in, I mean, outside of Texas, outside of, outside Austin. of Austin, I'm sorry. Yeah. You very quickly find yourself in old Texas and oh, that's, yes. that's not a bad place. Like people, I remember when I first moved here, somebody said to me, don't be the guy who says, well, Austin's great, but the rest of Texas, whoo. He says, don't, don't be that guy. Go and visit the other parts of Texas and see what Texas is really like. And you'll meet some of the nicest people in the whole world here. And you'll meet people who are both very confirmed in their points of view and perspectives, but also incredibly and surprisingly willing to accept your perspective and your point mm-hmm. of view. And that's mm-hmm. the one thing that I've found in Texas that really surprised me because it might – image of non-Austonian Texas was, it, it, I wasn't sure, is it, is it the Bible Belt? Is it South? Is it the South? Is it the Southwest? You know, like I, I had no, I had no idea because I'd only ever been to like Dallas and Austin and, and there are so many other great places, but like the one thing about Texas that I'd love so much is this fierce belief and willingness to defend your Texas. Texas as a whole and and also yeah. like like the the understanding that everybody is going to have their own individual perspectives and point of views and beliefs and far be it from me to tell you how you should think however don't you dare let those interfere with mine you know it's this interesting kind of uh it's like it's like this but it works somehow it works well, that, and that's the Alaska, that's the Alaska mentality too. Right, I can totally see that. Yeah, which is like I have five acres, you have five acres. Right now, on my five acres, I am going to customize bulldozers <laughs> so that they become, you know, flame throwing killing machines, <laughs> and I'm going to turn my five acres into a diesel smelling mud bog, uh, where I'm going to raise like fighting dogs and fuck you. If you want to come on there and tell me any of that, that I can't do any of that. Right. However, off of my five acres, like 
I got no truck with anybody else doing whatever the hell they want with their five acres. Right. And that was traditionally the Alaskan way. There's been a there's been a, a tremendous rise in evangelicalism up there that has changed that dynamic in my lifetime. Um, changed that dynamic somewhat, but that is the traditional Alaska mentality. My land, my scene. You do whatever the hell you want on your land and your scene. And then we'll all come together at Fur Rendezvous and get drunk and trade furs. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but along with the rise of evangelicalism, there's also been a rise of hippie environmentalism up there. And mm. hippie, you know, just as evangelicals do not want you to put your finger in anybody's butthole, no matter where that's happening, whether it's on your five acres or not, they just don't want it to happen. They can sense it. They can smell it in the air. Somebody's got their finger in somebody else's butt. And I am going to, I'm going to march in the streets just as that, you know, happened up there over the last 40 or 50 years. So too do the hippie environmentalists not want to let you do what you want on your five acres. And it's, they do not want you to run your diesel uh, tractors and destroy the world. You know, you are not allowed to strip mine because it's, you know, because it's that sense of the world that it's a shared place. And so, oh, boy, the vibe up there has really changed. But when I was a kid, you know, you could go stand on your front porch and shoot at the moon. Right. Shoot a shotgun at the moon. Right. And everybody would be like, well, there he is. Old Roderick's out shooting at the moon again. <laughs> but there, there wasn't, you know, there, that was the shared sense of the, the shared reality. But... Texas in particular, like the Texas flag is one of the few in the United States that I would show a particular reverence for in Texas. Like I would not scoff at it. Right, right. No, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, because I, because I recognize even as much as, as the history of the Texas Republic and the Alamo and all, all that, you know, it's very interesting and it's just kind of a founding myth of that particular place. Um, but that is, but, but I feel like that's very real. That is enough. And Texas for all of its slave state history and all the other ways in which it's the South, it also is, it also very much could have been a, a, a second Mexico. Oh yeah. And so, that flag, I just go, it's a, it's a big old star on there, just as the state capitol, the, the, the state house in, in Austin was built intentionally and specifically to be taller than the U.S. capitol. It is, the, the, the top of the dome is some incremental right. amount taller than the U.S. capitol as a just like, as just a, an amazing and wonderful fuck you mm-hmm. to everyone, mm-hmm. right? To, yep. Not just to ev- not just to everyone in America, but to other nations. <laughs> oh, sure. And so, God bless Texas. Uh, I couldn't pick the Minnesota flag out of. I, I couldn't pick the Minnesota flag out of a out of a pair of flags if one of those flags was Texan. Right, if there were two flags and one of them was Texan and the other was Minnesota, I would still wouldn't be able to tell you it was Minnesota's flag. Um, but and that's not to denigrate Minnesota. I think it's a wonder. Ten thousand lakes. 
up there. But it doesn't have that se- that that sense of place. Yeah. There are parts of Minnesota where you're like, am I in Iowa now? It's starting to feel a little Iowa around here. <laughs> right. But it's I'm gonna make some I'm gonna make some of those southern Minnesotans mad. But they they have to they have to agree. It does feel a little bit Iowa down there. <laughs> or maybe northern Iowa feels like Minnesota. Really, there should be another state there. We should have 51 states in that southern Minnesota, <laughs> northern Iowa place. Well, and also, God, southern Illinois. Have you ever spent any time in southern Illinois? Never, no. Never what been is, There's a lot of states is, I haven't been to. Are there any states you haven't been to? No, I've been to all the states. Every state. I've been to every state, and I've been to every city of any size in every state. Really? Pretty Was that much. a goal or just something that happened? Like, did you set out and say, you know what? Something I want to do. If you had asked me when I was 20, do you want to see every U.S. state? Mm-hmm. I would have, I would have, have uh, I would have taken it as red. Absolutely. I'm going to see every state. What are you talking about? Right. It wasn't, but it wasn't a thing I pursued like, I've only got four more states and I'm planning a trip. It, I, it happened very naturally. And, and I didn't get, I didn't actually arrive at 50 states until 2000 and three or something you know it wasn't methodical but but in the course of visiting all those states i also visited every city every wide spot in the road because being on the combination of being on tour also road tripping as a as a uh, leisure activity and dedicated hardcore traveling as mm-hmm. a, as a first principle the combination of those three overlapping traits yeah produced produced a world in which um if a place was named davenport i was going to visit it <laughs> just to get all the davenports <laughs> there you know there are quite a few davenports and you want to see them all and you know like whatever riverdale or or Springfield. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know if you could visit all the Springfields. There's a Springfield. I mean, some states have more than one Springfield. Is that true? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure you can name two towns in the same state Springfield, but there are definitely so many, so many Springfields. But Southern Illinois, for example, is a place that you go, where am I? It does not feel at all like you are in a place called Illinois but it's you know it's unclear that you are in Missouri either i mean it's it's um it's a it's a strange strange world down there it's a i mean it's a big area i've never really been out there there's so many places i haven't gone in the in this country well, you know what we should do is we should uh, we should take our show on the road and we should make a point to go to all places. So every can, every city in every well, state. Maybe not every city, but we should play places like you know we should play uh, Rock Island, <laughs> Davenport. We should play. It'd be like uh, that scene in a Blues Brothers where they're behind uh, that, the the, the, uh-huh. the fence. Uh huh. Uh, we should play uh, Fort Wayne. 
you know, we should play Cedar Rapids. Like visit like, every army base in the country. That's an interesting idea. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure how much appeal we would have with service people. Maybe that's a lot. most of our audience. But definitely to do a tour like that, where you where you didn't play any city that had more than. 275,000 people just set an arbitrary limit like right. how how many people are in uh Carbondale I think yes we're going to definitely play a show there but how oh no I'm sorry like Springfield has too many people right a lot of Springfields though so you could definitely play it you could do a tour of the United States where you just played Springfields and that would be you would definitely get in the newspaper <laughs> oh yeah you would get in the New York uh, You Times know how to work the press. I mean, I'll hand it to you there. Just call it the Springfield Tour and mm-hmm. just, just, <laughs> and some of those Springfields are only going to have 50 people. Yeah. So, so people would have to come from neighboring towns. Right. Um, Might have to pad the, uh, you know, the arena a little bit. Or something, or, or just get used to the fact that sometimes it's a big show, sometimes it's a little show. Would music be part of the show? Like, would you could, be. could you could be, be kept from bringing out a mandolin at some point? And could be. I mean, I, you know, when you travel, what do you travel with? Do you always have a guitar with you, or a mandolin, or do you pull a, a bass in the trunk, or something? Like, how do you? I have found that a solo artist with a bass Sting. doesn't doesn't really connect with audiences what about quite Sting? as much. He always has like eleven people in his band. Oh. Two drummers and a and someone playing a piccolo sax and <laughs> someone playing a, a a Chapman stick or a didgeridoo or something. I mean, Sting doesn't go out <laughs> without a full world music right. caravan. You never know what kind of music you're going to have to play. Yeah, that's right. But I hate schlepping a guitar through an airport, mm. and so I always try to not take a guitar. But that is a that's a problem because you show up places and it's like, Oh, I, I kind of should have a guitar here. <laughs> uh, so I started traveling with a ukulele because you can kind of, you can make it work with a ukulele, but I haven't worked up a full set, a full hour long set on the ukulele. That would require that I sit down and, and really do some diligent figuring out. I could easily do it. At, at the first XOXO I went to, my intention was to play a full set on the ukulele. And I got there and, uh, and I met a guy, you know, that first XOXO, I showed up and didn't know anybody, I thought. And right. then it turns out I knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And a guy walked up and we started talking and he was like, you playing tonight? And I had just broken my finger. And I, was I like, remember yeah, playing this ukulele. Right. And he said, I've got an electric guitar and an amp if you want to borrow it. And I said, sure. So he he brought these tools and and I kind of did a half and half show. Half ukulele, half electric guitar. But I sh- I probably should work up. I should work up a piano set where I can show up and it's only a piano and I can play 10 songs and a ukulele set. That'd be smart. Do you have an instrument that you gravitate toward more than another? Well, I'm a, I, I play the guitar the best, but lately I have been writing. I, so I, I, yesterday I wrote, uh, I've been working on a song for, for a few weeks, maybe a month. And 
really fits and starts. You know, I, I, I came up with some piano parts that I liked. I put some words to it. It kind of didn't coalesce. I, I put it down. Then I took it back up again and tried for a while longer. And I was like, this just isn't gelling. Right. And I put it away kind of like I've done with, with two dozen songs in the last five years where it's just like, well, this isn't happening. I don't have it anymore, I guess. I'll just put this one in the deep freeze and maybe one day I'll learn to write a song again. And I started to do that. And then sort of partly the experience of running for office and realizing while I was running for office that really what I wanted to be doing was writing songs. Running for office was so excruciating that by comparison, writing songs seemed really easy and fun. (laughs) And then I was confronted with this, oh, it's not easy and fun. It's hard and grueling to write songs. And I always knew that. But it's a very different kind of grueling than running for office because no one is torturing you in public. Like you're not actually being prodded with hot irons. You just have to pursue the thing that you're doing. And so I said, do not let this go into the deep freeze sit your ass down at the piano and figure this fucking problem out. (laughs) And so somewhere along the line, I realized that the lyrics that I had written were junk. I wasn't going to be able to salvage them. So I threw them away and I just started writing all new lyrics. And I've done that many, many times in the past. And I always forget that part of writing that first draft of lyrics is that yes, they are garbage and yes, you do throw them away, but then you write new lyrics, which are better and they're much easier to do because you wrote the first draft. And so I did that and then I was on to something. And then it got really hard because then I had good lyrics for the verses, but then you need a freaking chorus. And I'm always yelling at people around here. Nobody in the Northwest can write a fucking chorus to save their lives. All the songs are just meandering <laughs> and the verse goes along and then it goes to the chorus and the chorus goes along and Northwest musicians like always do that thing where they think it's very inventive to make the chorus even less whelming than the verse. Like the underwhelming chorus is a, is a trope <laughs> where, and now it goes to the chorus and the bass goes away or now it goes to the chorus and like the melody goes away and, and isn't that cool and edgy and weird? And it's like, no, it sucks is what it is. The chorus is the chorus for a reason. It's called a chorus because you want everyone to sing along with it and for it to be fun. And, or if not fun, at least like, like compelling. And so I, I talk that shit all the time, even knowing that I am guilty of sometimes writing choruses that only have one word in them. <laughs> sometimes writing choruses that repeat the same sentence over and over until people want to kill me, stab me in the eye. Like I haven't unlocked the chorus secret either. And there are so many great songwriters who just, and I'm not even talking about David Bowie level where everything in the song is perfect, but just great songwriters like AC Newman who can write a chorus And so I'm sitting at the piano. I'm like, I've got the verse. I've got the parts. Oh, now I have to write a chorus. And they're so hard. 
And so I struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled and picked away and picked away. And I got a half of a chorus and then I couldn't resolve it. And I never wanted to quit writing a song more than two days ago when I played this song that already had 85% of three verses complete and half of a chorus. I'm, I'm more ready to shoot it in the back of the head than ever before <laughs> at that moment. And then last night, I solved for X and wrote a, wrote a chorus that mm. satisfies me. And then it was like, oh man, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I am very close to completing this song. And that's where I am today. Oh, that's awesome. Very, very close to having finished a new song, which I have not, I can't, I can't lay claim to having felt that much in the last several years. It's a great feeling and it makes me feel like, mm, right, there are formulas that involve work and they do produce results and results are what I'm after right now. That's awesome. Yeah, so piano is what is doing that. And, and I'm not a good enough piano player to write fast, upbeat pop songs on the piano. So all of my piano songs are droney dirges, but I really like droney dirges. We would like to say thank you to Hover, hover.com. When you have a great idea, you want to get a good domain name for it, right? You want to find the perfect name that's out there. Of course, they register all the dot coms and dot nets in the world, but they have also got tons of other ones, country specific ones like dot UK and all the crazy new ones, dot design, dot club, dot pizza, you name it, they've got it. And other places, they'll make you upgrade for things that should just be included, like who is privacy, so that when someone runs a who is, that your, your own email address isn't sitting there for spam. They protect that. You know, it's great. Hover, this is built in. So many things that they do that are free. They have a free valet service, so you can skip the hassle of moving your domains over to Hover where, from wherever they're, they're registered. And they have this great thing. It's a no wait, no hold, no transfer policy. So when you call up, you talk to a real live human being who's ready to help. And they also have live chat support and email and online tutorials if you don't want to call. Whatever you want to do, you got it. Hover Connect, brand new thing. You get the freedom to choose what hosting service you want to set up your website with. So you can set up an online store with Shopify or make a site with Squarespace. All of this just connected, simple, straightforward, integrated with Hover. And you can get your first 10% off your first purchase by going to hover.com. And you want to use the code all the great shows, all the great shows, 10% off your first purchase at hover.com. Uh, how do you feel about a little viewer mail? Yes, uh, we can definitely do some viewer mail. I feel like I feel like that's going to be my new thing on this show that I go at a certain point. Hey, what about the viewer mail? I like yeah. that. I yeah. like that. It's no, a good I love job. That. Be the viewer mail guy. What's your What's your take on viewer mail? Do you Do you only take the best viewer mail, or do you just read them all agnostically? Let's see what people have to say. I I read them all. Yeah, I read them all. I don't think that would be fair to the listener to say that their mail was no good and and not. Well, what about all the viewer mail we're going to get about uh, from like Benghazi truthers? Well, that that's a different that's a different thing. It has to be. I feel like the it, to get the mail read, I feel like either they have to say something 
really nice mm, to sort of nice. butter us up. Yeah, read the happy mail. Yeah. Or they have to really uh, need help, need your help. Oh, okay. All right. Good. I think that's a good criteria. So the, speaking of needing your help, Ryan, who says we can use his first name. Uh-huh. Ryan. But this email came in before we had set up the rule that they need to say where they are right, and all that other stuff. I've been listening to all your great shows for a long while. And one thing that I've always appreciated is that both of you at different times have been willing to share your own experiences with mental health. As somebody who's currently stuck in a very rough patch of anxiety and panic attacks, I find myself caught between two desires. Some moments, I want to tell everybody I meet, hi, I just, have, I, I just had a panic attack and I've lost, lost seven pounds in a week. I think it's partially selfish, hey, be nice to me, but also an attempt to care for others. Look, we're all going through something. At other times, I try very hard to make sure nobody else knows how I'm feeling. I'd rather be seen as an unfeeling Jason Bourne robot than as a vulnerable human being. That's the side that wins out most often. Have you two ever felt that same tension? How do you navigate it? Thanks for all you do, Ryan in Denver. So he did even say where he was. Ryan in Denver. Good. Ryan in Denver. Yeah. Mile High City, the brown cloud. <laughs> uh, well, do you want to do you want to take first? Uh, you, stab you take at a that? stab at it. Uh, because I'm very, I'm when I read this one, I was very curious to hear how you would answer this. Uh, because you have talked about how, on the one hand, it it takes a certain kind of person to be able to talk openly about these things, to be able to get up on a stage and perform and and sing your heart out and and bear your soul as using your uh, your phrase from last episode. But at the same time, you. Are, are say that you're an introvert and that you're content to be completely on your own and that you after you are out with human beings that you then need to recharge your battery by being alone. Mm-hmm. So I think you can talk about what this guy's feeling pretty well. Yeah, I I feel like a lot of it has to do with uh with some of the stuff we talked about last episode uh like to do with our idea of privacy and what 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 is important to keep private or what what constitutes the the personal the personal private and for a lot of people all the things that attend our mental illnesses all feel really covered in shame and that's the private stuff that we don't want to reveal and then there's also traditionally the the fact that you reveal too much of that stuff and and you can be denied insurance or you can be fired from your job or um there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of social like approbation put on people who are sick supposedly um my take on it has always been that I'm not I'm not that different. Uh, and, and when I say like approbation, I don't mean praise, but I mean like, and I guess that's what that word means. But I mean, I mean notice, like. Um, but I I, I feel like that. Those aspects 
of who we are mm-hmm. are are so shared with one another that that this this that the feelings that I have of self-loathing and of depression and of mania and nervousness and fear and all this stuff it's they're 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 absolutely held in common by so many people and we hold ourselves against a standard uh, this unrealistic standard of what we imagine to be perfect people who are ha- who are endlessly happy yeah and we feel like we are we are broken and lesser but in fact there are so many of us and there isn't any shame in it although the disease feels it's not just that we feel ashamed that other people would know it but the disease is actually a feeling of shame that's that's how the disease manifests itself mm-hmm. uh free floating shame but so i've 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 always felt like revealing that is both helpful to other people and helpful to me because it because it takes it out of that special category and puts it into puts it into public and 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 enables you to say i'm this is this is normal it is repeatable it is whether or not it's treatable i don't know but it is um you know it is within the bell curve and the the problem is that there are still all kinds of there's still all kinds of confusion about our mental lives and so somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, who does monstrous things, mm-hmm. but it is still in some ways a rational actor. He can, he can speak about himself. He can reflect upon himself. He says, I don't know why I did this. I don't know. I was, a, I was compelled. I, was, I fought it as long as I could. Um, and we have we have very little human sympathy for the extremes of our mind and we say put Dahmer to death and this is particularly true of people who are, who have sexual compulsions that we really 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 don't like and we you know we categorize certain categories of people as creeps and and uh we want to exclude them from human life we want to destroy them burn them alive in the public square and you know a lot of those people report a similar thing i'm compelled i i hate myself i don't understand i do everything i can you know people that castrate themselves chemically and and actually in order to try and control their compulsion and so we don't we're we're not completely empathetic to our own kind there are still lots and lots of people that fall outside of the of the uh the circle of light where we we allow we allow that it is normal so i hesitate to say like you know express your true self and be free because there still is a lot of condemnation and a lot of just uh I mean, I always felt like Dahmer and Bundy and Ridgeway, like these people should be in laboratories 
We should not let them. We should not execute them. We should not let them go. They are test cases of a kind of human capacity that should be like rigorously, exhaustively studied. And by knowing more about, because there's, there's, there's so much curiosity about serial killers. There's a whole industry of, of people that, of, of books and we think about them all the time. They are, they are fascinating creatures to us, but when confronted with one, we're so appalled that, you know, at least in this country, we put them to death and we don't want to glorify them in any way. You know, we're, we're suspicious of their autobiographies, you know, and they're obviously like often liars, but, but so, so yeah, I, I, my own problems and my own uh, struggle is well within the, the circle of light. And so I feel at liberty to describe it and discuss it because anybody that comes at me for it, uh, you know, that, uh, they won't have any ground to stand on. You're going to blackmail me. You're going to say I'm not fit for a public office or that I shouldn't be hired for this job because I'm, because I suffer from, but let's say bipolar disease. Um, that would be, I would, I would stand my ground in a situation like that. But it's also exhausting. It's exhausting to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's, I, I don't personally consider it a privacy issue. It's, uh, it's much more like my private life that I express through introversion. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what I'm referring to when I say introversion. It's like, I am not, um, I'm not available to everybody. You don't, you don't get to intrude upon my thoughts or my, um, my person. And so I protect myself. I protect myself sometimes by not revealing the mundane and because it's through that mundane that people try to gain access to you. Mm. This whole, this whole world in which we, the first question people ask is like, what's your favorite movie? Or what's your favorite TV show? It's like, fuck you. I don't, I'm not going to talk to you about my favorite TV show because that isn't any kind of access to me. You don't know anything about me because of what my favorite TV show is. And don't think that you do keep away from my, hmm. uh, from that false sense that you know me. And it puts me at odds with, a lot of the culture where that's just the calling card. Here's my favorite TV show. Here's right. my favorite record. Like, Here's my favorite one. You fill out the things that you like in your Facebook profile. Your favorite TV shows are, are listed there. Yeah. No, fuck you. You don't get to know that stuff about me because that it, and not because, not because it says anything about me, but precisely because it doesn't. And that is a kind of familiarity that I don't, I'm not interested in. Somebody coming up and going, hey, I saw you like the Americans. I like the Americans too. Let's, we must have a lot in common. It's like, what? No, sir. Um, but I will say that I probably suffer from bipolar too. And that that is, a, that has been a struggle my whole life. And if you want to come up and talk to me about that, 
I welcome it. That seems interesting and human and real. Hmm. What about you? You are pretty public about your favorite TV shows and your struggle, right? Like you are an example. A lot of people refer to you as sort of a, like a, uh, I mean, there it's part of your brand that you are, um, that you have worked hard to know what your foibles are. Yeah. Talking about like OCD stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you, you talk about that pretty publicly. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, like why not? Right. I wish somebody had talked about that kind of thing when I was younger. Right. Or even six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, you, I think the stigma of these types of thing, whether it's like Ryan from Denver who has panic attacks or all the things that you've been open about talking about and sharing uh, or OCD or whatever. Like, I think it had to kind of, all of these things had to go through an evolution before people could really talk about them. And I think the evolution starts with like, you know, the, the extreme cases that you just read about where it's, it's like, wow, that poor person to a lifetime movie, to a, some kind of a joke, to something we can actually talk about. And maybe it doesn't always go through that exact progression, but you know what I mean? Whereas it, you hear about the term bipolar or manic or OCD or whatever. And at first, you know, OCD is like people think, well, there were, there was this one guy who used to build airplanes and he was OCD, right? And he used to live in a hotel room. And then you realize that. Let his fingernails grow along. Yeah. And then like, the yeah, way of the future. And then that that's not the definitive picture of it. But you know, if you, if, if you've ever been driving to work in really bad morning traffic and it's taken you 40 minutes and the whole time you've been wondering if you remember to turn the iron off and you have to turn around and you have Ooh. to go home another 20, 30, 40 minutes and then back again and you know you're going to be late and the only reason that you're doing it is because you can't turn that that loop off. You know, I mean, I think yeah. like talking about something like that and hearing that other people have had to deal with something like that, it, I think it can be very helpful. I remember I, when I was a kid growing up, I saw, I don't know how old I was, maybe preteen, early teen time period. There was some show probably on HBO talking about some guy who was, I guess he worked in TV news or something. And it, he had come out to talk about his OCD and how he had dealt with it and, and what it was like. And it was like the first time that I was like, wow, I, I just thought this thing was just me. Yeah. At me and Howard, you know? Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and it turns out that it's a fairly common thing in a sense of like, it's, it's common enough that people aren't alone with it. But like, if you're, if you're struggling with this kind of thing, whether it's panic attacks or feelings of, of shame or being bipolar or whatever the right term is for it today, or having OCD about things, um, 
you know, or fear of flying or whatever it is. Like how, how come some of these things are, can, are not considered weird or not considered strange. And fear of flying is probably a good example there. We wouldn't have bars in airports <laughs> at the, at, in the amount that we have them where there's one every 10 feet. If most people were not uneasy about flying and there's people who can't board an airplane sober, but that's not weird. I'm not well, scared of, I'm not scared of flying at all. It's kind of weird, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that at all. I used to be petrified about it. Yeah. I used to be the two martini guy, you know, to feel good about it until I, I got prescribed Xanax for it. Then that, then it was even well, less I mean, of a big yeah, deal. That's talk about two martinis. Xanax is two, there's three martinis and a, and a little tablet that takes like, tastes like a turkey dinner. Right. But I, I, you know, a lot of it has to do with our changing ideas of what masculinity is. Right. You know, like, uh, uh, a man can say, I am anxious now and right. not, not uh, get ridiculed for it. What yeah. Kind no, of well, person seem, are you? Yeah. Right. Seem effeminate or, or incapable. Right. But also I, I think that like what I was first diagnosed as bipolar 30 years ago and I rejected the diagnosis because most of the people that spoke about that stuff in public or most of the public awareness of it it was all the extreme cases. Like this guy has bipolar. He just uh, bought a plane ticket to Las Vegas at two o'clock in the morning and went on a three day gambling spree where he lost his house. Wow. That's pretty extraordinary. This person is bipolar and they went into a hotel and put a, and went on the internet and said, anybody that comes and knocks on room 204, uh, I will, you know, I'll open the door a crack, and if I like the look of you, you can come in and have sex with me. <laughs> and for four days, you know, had sex with everyone who showed up. Like, wow, bipolar. That sounds pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And I wasn't like that at all. And so, uh, so I was like, that's baloney. I'm not bipolar. Right, right, like, right. You're, that's what a terrible, what a terrible misdiagnosis. But in fact, you know, I'm on that spectrum, and when I learned that there was something called bipolar two, which is a thing where you never go all the way to full mania, nor do you fall all the way through the bottom to um, suicide. You're in this realm where it's like, sometimes you don't sleep very much and you have a lot of big plans and you, uh, don't, and you forget to eat and you decide to run for city council uh, even though you are you have no experience in political culture at all or you you know what whatever I've made plenty of decisions including like you know what I'm gonna walk across Europe where later on I was like well I committed to this and I don't know what I was thinking when I said I was gonna do this but here I am so follow through and then other times where three months go by and I just do not get out of bed, Hmm. get out of bed at three o'clock in the afternoon, go down, go to the bathroom, make macaroni and cheese. Don't decant it out of the pot, but just take the pot and a spoon back up to bed, (laughs) eat the macaroni and cheese 
and then watch Law and Order until four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not very good either. No, doesn't sound super healthy. But I've spent many, many months of my life that way. Wow. And but realizing as time has gone on that, like, look, not all of these, not all OCD people end up as Howard Hughes. Right. Not all manic, depressive, or bipolar people are. Uh, should be institutionalized, but you can be on that spectrum and it can still be devastating and it can still, your life, you know, my life isn't a wreck, but there are dents in every quarter panel (laughs) and in the door and I'm missing some trim and my dash is cracked (laughs) and there's a little bit of rust in the floor. Like, and and all of that is a product of this sort of untreated mental illness that I never was will I wasn't willing to treat because I rejected the notion that I was that I mean the way that, the ways in which I w- was broken felt normal and natural right because you've been because doing it for so long I've been doing it for so long and it also feels like from within the mental illness it feels like a reasonable response to the world mm-hmm. when I was depressed and and eating macaroni and cheese in bed that seemed like a reasonable response to how I perceived myself and, and the world at the time. So that's what's, you know, that's what's so destabilizing about it is just like, it doesn't feel alien. Right. It feels right. You, you driving back 40 minutes to make sure the iron was turned off. Right. And I hadn't used the iron since two days earlier. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it it, wasn't like I just used it to run out the door. Like it it had been turned off. (laughs) It was put away in the closet. But, but in the, in that state of mind, you feel like this is, this is the basic minimum of, of conscientiousness. I mean, I need to go back and because of the house. Right, because if I down. don't, the house will certainly burn down and it will start a fire at, at the next door neighbor's house and they just had a new baby. Right. So you, I, you, I don't want to kill their new baby. No, Therefore, no. I have to drive home. You don't want to kill that baby. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the kind of thinking. And, you, and through all of that kind of stuff, and I'm curious for you, like you were talking about that natural response that it seems I – That's something that's different is I've often heard about people who, you know, and I, I, maybe the macaroni is a good example of this. When you're doing that, like now you can look back and say, yeah, I probably, that probably wasn't good for me to be doing. But at the time, did it seem like a reasonable thing to do? Is that what you're saying? Certainly the mania always felt amazing and it it always felt like, oh, this is my natural self. Thank God I'm back. Mm. Now let's go start fires all over town Mm -hmm. because John is back. Yeah. Uh, And then when I'm on a, when I'm in between and I'm on an even keel in the nature of the voices in my head mean that when I'm on an even keel, I'm still arguing all the time with Bismarck. And Metronict and Napoleon and uh, and then a cast of Greek Furies, and I'm also probably arguing with uh, you know Saint Thomas Aquinas, and you know I'm like <laughs> arguing all the time with people, and it, so it never feels comfortable, even at a even when I'm normal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And frankly, wow. even when I'm manic, it feel I'm still like I'm just arguing with them in a much more manic way, and I'm defeating them in argument. Except Bismarck, you can never really defeat him. He's very canny. Uh, but so normal is always a little bit tinged. It's always a little blue. But then when I when I plunge, it absolutely feels like a like it's it's very rational. Right, I am a shit show, and it sucks, and life sucks, and not sucks enough to want to end it, right? But sucks enough that there's no point in getting out of bed today. Wow, I mean, I I think I know what you mean. For me, I don't, and I don't know if this is typical of people who have like dealt with this kind of thing at OCD. Like, there's always, for me, always been that other part of me very consciously that's saying you know you didn't use the iron dumbass (laughs) and you know that not only isn't it still on but you remember putting it away and then the voices of (laughs) i think you're remembering the time before last time oh oh yeah you're not remembering this time you're remembering the time before the last time or you know okay i'm in bed all the lights are out. The doors are locked. I remember to put the alarm on. All of that. You sure you remember tonight? Or are you thinking of last night? Because you're probably thinking of last night. Right? Probably thinking of last night. You're Absolutely. thinking about last night. You should go check. You should really go check again. I know you've done it two other times. But those two other times, that might have been last night. So you should really go check. That's a tough voice. And 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 that one, And then there's there, there's the rational part that's like, First of all, you know that's the OCD talking, and you know that you did it to the point where I remember at one point I said, you know what I'm going to do, and, and you'll see how the mind works. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get – I have a, a field notes notebook I'm not using for anything. I'm going to write down a little checklist in it, and as I go through and I check the doors or whatever I'm worried about, I will put a little check next to it, and uh, I'll just – Don't have to go back. Don't have to go back. How many times do you think you can check that notebook? How did that work? Yeah, not so good. So yeah. like, you know, it's it's like all of that kind of stuff. If I always knew that it wasn't a rational thing to be doing. I always knew that it wasn't, but it's, you know, again, looking at that fear of flying or, or somebody who's scared of spiders or something or whatever it is, you know, scared of heights. I remember when I worked through and lost my fear of heights. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing, you know? And like, so for example, I had two different experiences with this. The first time was the time I went to the world trade center and I went up to the top and I was, I wasn't afraid to be up there, but I really couldn't stay by the edge for more than just a second or two. And there I saw all around me, other people of all ages, children, young people, very old people, all right at the edge. None of them were just being blown off and rolling over the edge and dying. Uh, they were all fine. But for me, I felt like, well, if I got too close, I would whip right over the edge. I'd be, you know what I mean? Like, and it, and it was to the point that like, if I stayed there at the edge for too long, no, I'd have, I'd have to get away from it. And, then after overcoming this fear, 
And uh, then visiting, I forget what tall building it was, 30 Rock or something like that, which I know isn't quite as tall as the Trade Center, but it wasn't, it wasn't the how tall it was. It was the fact that it was tall at all. That feeling completely being gone, what a great feeling it was to like lean over the edge and feel totally fine and remember the way that I used to feel and think back and kind of chuckle and be like, why did I feel like that? You know, but that's the way that I think people who don't get this kind of thing, whether it's, why would he be like up there with macaroni and cheese? And like, why doesn't he just get up and go down, you know, or why is this dude having a panic attack? Like, that's stupid. Why is this guy worried about his iron being turned on? You know what I mean? Like when even, even myself looking back at the time, I, I understand that. But what people who maybe haven't experienced this need to know that for the person who's going through it, it's absolutely a huge challenge. You know, it's like now I, I've talked to, we've talked about back issues before, right? And so like one of the things that I'm doing now, I'm in like full on like uh, have a, a, a personal trainer who's a, a registered nurse and she's like, like hardcore trainer. And like, I'm like working really hard to like overcome these lower back issues that I've had these like chronic things. I'm, I'm making really great progress doing it and I'm working really hard. And there's a part of me that it's like, I'm in there and I'm like the stuff that I'm doing, it doesn't, some of it, it seems like these weak ass little things that like, I should be able to lift this or I should be able to do this. But like, I can't be embarrassed that I can't because like I'm working really hard to overcome this long-term issue that I've had from lack of core strength or whatever else caused it. You know what I mean? That like, for me, this stuff is hard, right? And like, it shouldn't be hard, but it is. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter that whether it should or shouldn't be this way. It doesn't matter whether this is something that should or shouldn't be hard. It is hard. And it's hard for the person who's doing it. And whether you can do it or not isn't relevant to whether that other person has a challenge with it. And like, it took me a long time to see that, even in myself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is like trying to answer Ryan's question. You know, I think he's, he's feeling like, should I be doing this one way or the other? Should, should I share this? Should I not share this? What is the right thing to do? Like, that's the question I feel like he's trying to ask. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he should do whatever he feels like he should do. And either way is right. Yeah. But I I feel like if he's asking, he probably sees the wisdom in sharing and, and understands the benefit of it and just has to, you know, find a way to get, find a way to figure out what, what is the, what's salient about it. Yeah. You know, it is helpful to other people to know that you're suffering, particularly people that are close to you. Right. If you, you know, if you trust them not to blow you off Mm -hmm. or suggest, I mean, you know, my big problem is that everybody's got a fucking solution. That's always like, well, why don't you do yoga? It's like, why don't you take a flying fuck at a rolling donut? (laughs) Um, and, but that's, that just goes with the territory. You, you have to, you have to educate yourself and then just help educate other people and not get frustrated by them. I don't know. It's, it, it, 
it really is a challenge to live in the world. And the only people that don't find it challenging are the very, very lucky few who have sunny dispositions, extroverted natures, optimistic worldviews, who have are naturally strong right. and beautiful and are wealthy and also <laughs> are, you know, like gifted. Those people, but that's a, but you know, that's the rare, rare, rare individual. But that's what's portrayed as that's normal. Yeah, that's normal. And that's, that's we should all aspire to be that. And we, sh- we, if we're not that, we're bad. And we should be that. And we should work toward that if we're not there already. Yeah. And but the thing is, like, over time, you realize those people are, are unique. They're extremely lucky. And they're nobody to hate. They're not, you can't even resent them because they, you know, they don't know, they didn't, they had no hand in it. There they are. You know, if you came out into the world and you could run a four minute mile or a three minute mile or whatever the current record is, or you came out into the world and you just could throw a Frisbee and catch a Frisbee just naturally the first time you tried. I mean, I had friends, my sister was friends with some kids that were just daredevil athletes. There was a kid named Andy Baugh who would just get on a long board and set off down a long twisty mountain road where it was an active road with cars coming up the hill and going down the hill. And he's on a, you know, on a long board and just, I mean, passing cars going so fast down this twisty mountain road with no safety equipment. And he just had that combination of physical giftedness, luck, daring where he could do things that uh, would kill other people and he didn't die and to this day is not dead and you just go fuck what can i do i can i resent this can i resent andy baugh his his gift no all you can do is appreciate it stand on the side of the road and clap your hands and go fuck yeah Mm -hmm. that's incredible but the last thing you should do is say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Or like compare yourself to him and say, uh, the fact that I cannot, the fact that, I mean, for me, it was not his talent that I envied. It was his daring. And I would sit and say, fuck, you know, I'm not brave. They're bright. I don't have the balls <laughs> to do this patently insane thing that also requires tremendous skill. It isn't a question of, you know, like he's not doing that without a lot of confidence in his ability to control that freaking skateboard. Um, but for, but at the time, all I could see was the, the balls. Right. The daring. Yeah. And I would compare my own daring, which was already off the scale, but it didn't measure up to that. And so, I was just like, I am, I am a lesser person. Um, And you just realize, like, God, the people that have it all, leave them be (laughs) there. Let them live. You know, they're great. All those rich kids on Instagram that are taking pictures of their, of their Patak Philippe's in their dad's private plane when they're on their way to burning man, like leave them alone, get them out of your head and stop worrying about them and 
don't ever compare yourself to them. They're just like, let them go. The rest of us are down here, ankle deep in mud. Some of us waist deep in mud. <laughs> and, uh, and we just have to, you know, we have to find our own, our, find our own dry place to sleep every night. 